Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Tammany Hall, Episode 1, Introductions. Thank you for joining me in this brand new podcast dedicated to the history of the legendary and infamous machine that strode across New York City's political scene for more than a century and a half, from the 1780s up to the 1960s. Tammany Hall always was, and remains, something of a controversial subject. For generations of reformers, Tammany represented the height of the dishonest and anti-democratic political system that plagued America's big cities. This was the view of James Bryce, the British historian and liberal politician who wrote, There is no denying that the government of the cities is the one conspicuous failure of the United States. Similar criticisms came from more left-wing figures, like the muckraking journalist Lincoln Steffens, who condemned Tammany and other big city political machines as, quote, the shame of the cities. This view remains prevalent. To the extent that Tammany Hall is remembered much at all today, it is as a byword for a certain type of fraudulent and hard-nosed big city politics. Interestingly, I recently came across a reference to Tammany Hall in President Obama's new memoir, Here's how he describes his impressions of Vladimir Putin following an early head-to-head meeting. Putin reminded me of the sorts of men who had once run the Chicago machine or Tammany Hall. Tough, street-smart, unsentimental characters who knew what they knew, who never moved outside their narrow experiences, and who viewed patronage, bribery, shakedowns, fraud, and occasional violence as legitimate tools of the trade. The thing is... This view is absolutely correct in many ways. That Obama quote provides a pretty spot-on description of some of the figures we'll come across in future episodes. And it would be nearly impossible for even the most overheated Tammany critic to overstate the crimes of the Hall's most famous leader, Boss William Tweed, who oversaw a system of organized theft that operated on a massive scale. By the time of his spectacular fall from grace in 1871, Boss Tweed and his associates may have stolen as much as $200 million from New York's government. Plenty of successors engaged in equally corrupt practices, albeit on a more restrained scale. What's more, as we move forward in this podcast, we'll hear plenty of tales of stolen elections, connections to the criminal underworld, and the use of violence to repress political opponents. However, I think it's fair to say that there's more to the history of Tammany Hall than stories of outlandish crime and colorful personalities. In many ways, the history of Tammany Hall is the history of immigration in America during the 19th and 20th centuries. Throughout these years, thousands of immigrants poured into New York Harbor, fleeing poverty, famine, political turmoil, and repression. For the most part, the city's elite, including many of Tammany's most vocal reformist critics, had little use for these newcomers. They were condemned as inferior, both culturally and ethnically. They were seen as ill-equipped for full participation as citizens in their new homeland. Tammany, in contrast, was one of the few major New York institutions to offer these immigrant communities something resembling a warm welcome. Tammany's ward healers approached new arrivals and offered them jobs, cash handouts, and help in navigating some of the bewildering realities of their new country. All they asked in return was their regular and loyal support at the polls. To be sure, 
This pro-immigrant approach was not born out of any particular idealism. Rather, a clear-eyed calculation of political self-interest encouraged Tammany to curry favor with this massive and growing voting bloc. The Hall's leaders were among the first to recognize the true significance of this influx of immigrants who would reshape New York's population starting in the early decades of the 19th century. Reformers called this outreach to immigrants exploitative and accused Tammany of preying on the political ignorance of New York's foreign-born population. However, in the eyes of many immigrants, the Hall's offer was the best option available to them. For all their high-minded talk of good governance and clean politics, New York's elite reformers offered little in the way of material benefits. Instead, they tended to look down on poor immigrants with a mix of condescension and disdain. Many of Tammany Hall's most successful politicians, on the other hand, projected an image of themselves as roguish Robin Hood figures who made no bones about their corruption but at least promised to spread the wealth around from time to time. Finally, many of Tammany Hall's leaders could credibly claim a shared background and experiences with New York's working class. Many of these figures had themselves been born to poor immigrant families. Even as they gained power and wealth, Tammany's leaders carefully maintained close personal and social ties with the neighborhoods they'd come from. As a result of these different factors, Tammany earned the enduring loyalty of countless Irish, Jewish, German, and Italian Americans. In time, these communities would claim direct control over the leadership over to, of Tammany Hall, and through the political machine, they would gain a direct voice in New York's political system. Tammany Hall's relationship with New York's immigrants was emblematic of a proudly transactional conception of politics, which was at the heart of Tammany's longevity and success. This conception was best encapsulated by George Washington Plunkett, a longtime Tammany district leader and a self-styled political philosopher. From his post at the bootblack stand at the New York County Courthouse, Plunkett famously proclaimed, I seen my opportunities, and I took them. For Plunkett, it was only natural that politicians would use their influence and connections for personal gain, a system he dubbed honest graft. However, Plunkett also recognized that these gains came with a serious responsibility to help supporters and loyal constituents through the liberal distribution of jobs and other forms of patronage. The local Tammany clubhouse should be there with a helping hand for anyone who needed it. Here's how Plunkett put it. If a family is burned out, I don't ask whether they're Republicans or Democrats. I just get quarters for them, buy clothes for them if their clothes were burned up, and fix them up till they get things running again. It's philanthropy, but it's politics too, mighty good politics. Who could tell how many votes one of these fires brings me? The poor are the most grateful people in the world, and let me tell you, they have more friends in their neighborhoods than the rich. By the early 20th century, Plunkett's transactional political philosophy had evolved into something of a broader progressive vision. The career of Al Smith, perhaps the most distinguished product of Tammany Hall, is emblematic of this shift. Born to a poor family of Irish immigrants on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, Smith was forced to drop out of school and start working after his father died when he was 13. 
However, he rose to become one of New York's most successful governors. As the Democratic candidate for president in 1928, Smith made history as the first Catholic to win a major party's nomination. Along the way, Smith developed a faith in the capacity of the government to improve the lives of working people and rein in the worst excesses of the free market. In the aftermath of the tragic 1911 Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, Smith led the charge for new state laws to regulate unsafe and dangerous working conditions. Though Smith had a famously fractious relationship with FDR, his time as governor was something of a trial run for the New Deal, as he built new state parks, increased workers' compensation, and authorized more generous pensions. Of course, Tammany's political system was always far from perfect, and I would caution against romanticizing this transactional approach to politics. While Tammany's leaders claimed to speak for New York's poor, they exercised no qualms about crushing working-class movements when they posed a threat to their political position. Most famously, in the election of 1886, Tammany reached an accommodation with the Wasp elites who ran New York's Republican Party in order to fend off the challenge of left-wing pro-labor candidate Henry George. Furthermore, the transactional approach ran out of steam when it came against the racial biases of Tammany's leadership. In theory, Tammany should have recognized New York's African-American population as another potential source of loyal votes, just like Irish and Jewish immigrants. However, for decades, African-Americans were almost entirely shut out of Tammany Hall and faced significant racial discrimination. Mayor Fernando Wood's commitment to slavery was so great that he infamously suggested that New York secede at the outset of the Civil War. Yet, even here, Tammany demonstrated a pragmatic flexibility over time. In the 20th century, the Great Migration meant that New York's black population was too large to ignore, and Tammany began the fitful process of opening leadership positions to African Americans in neighborhoods like Harlem. Ultimately, I think it's these contradictory aspects that draw me to Tammany Hall as a subject. I'm not a professional historian, and I can't claim any official expertise in this area. I'm just someone who's always been interested in New York's history and political development. Within that subject, there's something fascinating about this organization that was simultaneously the corrupt shame of the cities and also the closest thing to a voice speaking for New York's poor immigrant communities. We should also note that the history of Tammany Hall makes for a great and entertaining narrative. Some of the stories of Tammany's misdeeds, like the Great Police Riot of 1857 and the Ice Trust Scandal of 1900, are almost unbelievable, and I'm looking forward to discussing them in detail. In the coming episodes, we'll get to know a host of colorful characters. Some of them are well-known, like the cunning Aaron Burr, who first organized Tammany as a political machine. Others are less famous, like the police chief Big Bill Devery, a mountain of a man who gained notoriety for both outlandish corruption and his acerbically witty quotations. In the words of journalist Lincoln Steffens, as a chief of police, he is a disgrace, but as a character, he is a work of art. Alongside these stories, we'll also see how Tammany intersects with some of the most important themes in all of American history, such as the growth in immigration, the development of the American political party system, and the rise of the labor movement. Well, I think that's just been enough uh, for this little introductory episode. 
I'll just close out with a few quick housekeeping matters. It looks like this episode is a little bit on the shorter side. I'm guessing in future episodes I will uh, ramble on a little bit longer once we get into the swing of things. For now, I'm hoping to put out a new episode uh, every other Sunday. However, I will certainly keep you posted if there are any changes to that schedule. Next, uh, as I just said, I am not a professional historian, and the whole world of podcast production is new to me. With that in mind, I'd love to hear from you with any thoughts or feedback. So please do shoot me an email at TammanyHallPodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow the pod on Twitter and Instagram at TammanyHistory. I will try to keep those uh, updated fairly regularly. All right, then. uh, I'll be back in two weeks with the founding of the Tammany Society in 1789. In the meantime, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you.